Father, you are worthy of our praise and glory as we have gone through great pains to lead your people to do, which is just to, to praise you, because you are truly worthy of our praise. Oftentimes, one of Satan's schemes is to cause us to think that we are only to praise you in the good times, only to praise you when we perceive things to be going the way we desire them to be. Only have praise come forth from our lips on Sunday. But we know the truth of your word. We know the impact of the gospel. And that you have literally transformed our souls from the inside out, made us new creations. And as new creations, our lips are to give you praise at all times. There ought not be a moment when we don't give you praise because you are worthy of all praise. So despite what our minds and our eyes can see and perceive, receive our praise today. Loosen our lips to give you all the glory that you deserve. Let us not try to play God by giving you glory when we want to but let us rather give you the glory that is due your holy name. Sometimes, Lord, sometimes I feel like you just got to stick your finger in the roof of this building for us to behold the magnitude of who you are. That that would shake off those cobwebs of, of giving you circumstantial praise. Once we see how magnanimous you are, how big you are, how strong you are, how mighty you are, the Old Testament, Lord, the, the people of Israel said, we want to see this God you speak to, Moses. So Moses brought them on down to the mountain. And when they started to see the peals of thunder and the lightning rolling across the skies and the earth began to shake, they said, Moses, send him away. He's too great. He's too mighty. But I'm sure, Lord, that left an indelible mark on their hearts. They recognize at that moment who you were. Lord, I'm asking that you would give us a moment at the mountain. Within our hearts and within our souls that you would shake us and rock us to give you the glory you deserve. And that this morning, Lord, though it's a simple concept, pray that the depth of it would penetrate our souls down to the marrow of our bones. That it would enter into our bloodstream and that we would live knowing that we have been redeemed by grace through faith. And that it is not our own. It is a gift of God that no man may boast. And so we give you all the glory, Lord Jesus, for taking the wrath of God, propitiating God's wrath on the cross, satisfying God's wrath on that cross in your subsequent death and burial, and that on the third day you rose, proving your sacrifice accepted. Life perfect, atonement accomplished. Those words you said on the cross, Tetelestai, you said it is finished. Those words ring true today in the hearts and minds of your saints. Have your way with us, Lord. We thank you and we give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, Pillar Church. Hey, come on with it. The Lord is good. Give him some. I'm going to close this door while y'all doing that. Hold up. Yeah, I'm just closing this door. Y'all pray for me. I'm paranoid. I don't like doors behind me being open, man. I don't know. My past life got me messed up. Uh, Pastor Kane in here. Good morning. We're going to continue in our series in the book of Galatians. 
Go ahead and open up in your copy of God's Word to the book of Galatians. We're only going to consider one verse this morning, and I'm going to loosely exposit it, but it contains a concept that I really want to hit today, and it's the concept of the offense of the cross, how the message of the gospel is offensive. But before we get to that passage, I want to ask you, in light of last week's sermon, where we talked about taking your place in the Aramos. If you remember, the Aramos is the desert place where Jesus would frequently go to seek God's uh, favor, uh, to ask the, the Spirit of God to be with him. He would go and seemingly be empowered by the Spirit of God while he was alone, deserted, in a deserted place with no one else. He would spend time with power that he may exude power. And so I challenged us last week and I reminded us that the cons, uh, one of the Satan's greatest schemes um, isn't what we're seeing in the political milieu. It's not what we're experiencing in, in, our, in, our, in our day-to-day lives in terms of um, our relational qualms. No, uh, one of Satan's greatest schemes is busyness. And he has us too busy to spend time in the Aramos. And if we don't spend time in the Aramos, we have no power. And then we wonder why we're a powerless generation when it comes to the gospel being proclaimed. And so I want to ask you this in light of last week, as I challenged you, I told you that as soon as you tried to spend time in the Aramos, you were going to be challenged on that. And I want you to think back, was your week full of distractions that kept you out of the Aramos? I know mine was. Did you allow yourself to believe the lie that you didn't have time to dwell with God in your secret place? Did you allow Satan to keep you busy? too busy to get quiet before the Lord. Now, beloved, there were portions of time last week where I was, the, I was the messenger of that message, right? And there were portions of time where I was successful in dwelling with God in the Aramos. But beloved, believe you me, there was times where I failed miserably. And I knew I needed to spend time with God in a secret place, but I allowed Satan's schemes to make me think I was too busy to do it. And so I'm telling you my own failings to let you know, beloved, this is a one step at a time type of thing. You're not going to go from spending no time with Jesus to spending all the time with Jesus. That's a large step. It's step by step. I want you to do this. If you didn't spend time with God in the Aramos and you're feeling guilty about it, I want you to remember this verse from Ephesians chapter 2. This verse hits different when you know you're in need of grace. This verse hits different when you know this past week you've committed an egregious sin. And it's been irking you in your soul. And you've confessed it to God. But there's something in you that's still irking you. This verse is God's ointment for your soul. It says, for you have been saved by grace through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Beloved, if you failed at something this week or you tripped up on something this week, I want to remind you of something. I want to to remind you that you're accepted by God by grace. That's how you're accepted by God, by grace, through faith. That God's love and forgiveness for you is capital N, not contingent on how your week went last week. Okay, you have to be free from that, beloved. Your acceptance with God is not contingent on how your week went last week or the week before. 
That's not the means by which he measures his love for his people. God's, live, God's love for us, for me, for you, is a gift, and it's based on your faith and trust in Jesus. And so what I want us to do is actively turn our week and to turn our life over unto Jesus and receive his free gift of grace. It's free. Y'all know free things are great. If I tell you something free going on down the street, y'all going to go check it out, right? Because it's free. Well, God's gift is free, beloved. It's for you. Take it. Receive that. And don't let the burden of guilt hinder you any longer. Now, I say that as a transition into what we're going to talk about this morning. Somewhere in some of y'all's hearts, some of y'all are thinking that's too easy. Are you thinking that's too easy? That's too simple. You mean just trust and trust myself to Jesus and all that went on last week is, is, is good? Like, how does this work? That the idea of grace is too simple. Well, you're not alone in that concept. There were certain men in the first century who thought the same thing, and they taught the same thing. They specifically ta- uh, taught that in order to be made right with God, or be made right in his sight, you had to do something instead of being something. And that is one of the chief mistakes when it comes to our Christian faith, is that we think in order to be made right with God, we have to do something. When God says you have to do nothing, you have to be something. But God requires, play on words, right? God requires that you believe so that you might become. We don't become more like Jesus by doing things. Try, you're going to fail every time. I can say that confidently. Because I've tried and I've failed every time. You become more like Jesus the more you're with him. You're transformed the more you're in his presence. Sin begins to look utterly sinful, not when you're resisting it with all your might, but when you're, dwelled, when you're, when you're sta- uh, sitting and rested, uh, when you've tabernacled, when you've, what was the word from John 15 last week? Y'all remember? When you dwell in the presence of God and he transforms you from the inside out, that's when sin looks utterly sinful to you. Specifically, as these false teachers were teaching, like, no, that's too easy. You have to do in order to become. And specifically, you need to keep the law of Moses and get circumcised. That was their message. You want to be made right with God? Do the law of Moses. Be be, Be circumcised. That's how you get made right with God. Beloved, that's a lie. That's not how you become right with God. Faith is the engine for action. Beloved, your obedience to any of God's laws at all is a result of the transformed heart within you. You don't think about this, beloved. You have a child. Do you make that child perform in order for that child to love, in order for, to love that child and that child to be accepted in your home? No. That's the worst parent. You have a three-year-old. Well, if you want me to love you, you need to do, 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 do these five things, then I'll love you. It sounds crazy to talk about it here, beloved. It's the same truth. No, you're mine. I love you despite that, but I do have rules. I have regulations. I have stipulations in my house, and you best obey them things or the belt coming off. (laughs) My past coming out again. But my love is not contingent on it. In fact, I obey God's mom's rules. I obey mom's rules. The more I mature, the more I love her, and I recognize that those are put in place for my good. So it's like, oh, I got it. Take the shoes off. Why? Because it's nasty on the streets. And I lay on the floor, and I don't need that on my skin. Y'all feel me? 
we're accepted by God because we're his children, we're his beloved, because we've placed our faith in Jesus. Now we're good with him. Not because of what you've done, it's because of who you are and what you believed. These false teachers were adamantly against that. So much so that they would threaten and harass anybody who taught otherwise. So if you didn't teach salvation by obedience to Mosaic law and to circumcision, they would literally harass you out of your ministry. They would come and heckle the crowds. They would come and, and harass the, the preacher. They would do whatever it took to get him to stop passing off that message. And they would also leverage the names of folks who had reputations to further their cause, which is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 11, this is the only verse we're going to consider from the book today, from the book of Galatians. Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Paul had been awakened to the reality of God's favor. That is by grace through faith. For anybody who's entrusted themselves to Jesus and as a result of Paul's awakening, his whole theological structure was flipped upside down. At one point, beloved, the apostle Paul was a false teacher. At one point, he would be one of these guys, they're called Judaizers, who would try to push on you that only way God loves you is if you obey the commandments, laws, and statutes. That was his previous theological framework. That was where he was previously. He was a Pharisee. And then God opened the eyes of his heart, quickened him to eternal life. And he quickly saw it's by grace, through faith. And so these false teachers harassed Paul, not simply because he left the Pharisaical community. He did. He left that community of false teachers. That was great, but they harassed him for another reason. They harassed him because his new message of justification by grace through faith was offensive to them. And that's the concept I want to lightly dust. This would, this, this would normally take about four weeks to kind of overview all the things that are offensive about the gospel to a soul, but we're going to lightly dust it today. I submit to you that it's similarly offensive to us today as it was to Paul's former crew. Now you may be thinking to yourself, how in the world is the idea of God's free grace offensive? Right, like that doesn't sound right. It's free, people like free stuff, how is that offensive? Well, let me start this concept with, a, with an illustration. Any of y'all got a family recipe that had been passed down from a couple generations? See, see my, my, mama, my grandmama family recipe better than all y'all's. I'm, just, I'm telling the truth, bruh. I see you outside at the church, bruh. Rest, bring the recipe. My grandmama pound cake. Y'all know, who, who, y'all know about pound cake? Who am I talking to? I don't know y'all. My, my grandmother's from Birmingham. Okay, so she made pound cake. Pound cake, usually you got to put strawberries and whipped cream. Nope, you don't need no strawberries or cream on my grandmama pound cake. It's moist, it's juicy, it's fluffy. It's everything you've ever wanted in pound cake. And she's the only one who ever made it right. And when you eat it, it's, uh, mm, it's pound cake. Her pound cake recipe is renowned in my father's side of the family. It's, it's, it's the beast, it's the big one. Any holiday where the pound cake ain't there, I'm going home. I didn't come to eat nothing else. I came for grandmama pound cake. That's why I was there. One day, my grandmother shared with me the pound cake recipe. And you know, that's honor. 
She gave me the pound cake recipe. I was like, you sure? I, 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 like she knighted me. I was like this, and she put it on my shoulders, and I received that mug. I was like, ooh. And one day, I got into a debate with somebody like him who thought that the recipe was better than my, my, my grandmama pound cake. And I, I shared the recipe, and then somebody suggested a change. Nah. You don't go suggesting changes to my grandmama recipe. That pound cake recipe is perfect. No one's, if I ever share it with you, don't tell me about a change. I ain't hearing it. I was offended, right? I was, and if you have a recipe like that in your family and someone says, well, this is better than that, instantly, somewhere in you, you're like, man, you don't know nothing, right? That's what you want to say to that person. I was offended, how the nerve of some people to think that they can make pound cake better. But here's the principle I want to pull out of the illustration. When something is beloved and is generational, we get offended at the thought of it changing or the thought that we may have misunderstood it. Now take those feelings and multiply it a hundredfold for the people of Paul's day. A hundredfold. That's why he says, now brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. There's an offense with what Paul is saying because he's suggesting that there's a misunderstanding in the way that those people were understanding a relationship with God. But this relationship with God, this this this. Thing between the people of God and the people of Israel is generations long, 2,000 years of interaction and God saving them and them repenting and them falling and them saving them. It's just a series of interactions with God. And here come this Paul dude talking about, hold on, y'all got it twisted. And they're like, hold on, Paul, who are you to tell us how to have relations with our God? This is our God. You're the defector. Throughout the book of Galatians, Paul is defending the true gospel against these Judaizers. And effectively, a Judaizer, let me kind of frame that for you. A Judaizer is someone who teaches that in order to be made right with God, you had to adhere to the law, statutes, and commandments given by Moses and be circumcised. In order to be made right with God, you needed to adhere to the customs of Judaism and the Old Covenant. They had to adhere to the Old Covenant. But here comes Paul and his teachers, and look what they're saying, Hebrews 8, 6. But Jesus has now attained a superior ministry, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant with an established on better promises. You see the beef? We've had the Mosaic covenant forever, and y'all coming over here talking about there's a new, better covenant with new, better promises? Don't be talking about my grandmama pound cake. You see where you see how it connected? Hold on. They got a problem. For 2,000 years, they had been adhering to the Mosaic law and circumcision. And who's this Paul guy to come on here saying that they got a little something twisted? To tell us that this whole concept of a law and circumcision, you know what he said about it? Paul said it was a shadow. They're thinking it's the substance. Paul comes in, he's like, no, my eyes have been opened. Everything we've been doing, but that's a shadow of something greater to come. He literally says that. Look, Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink. These are customs and some of these are laws, statutes, and commands. Or of a matter of festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. You see how they can be offended now? We've been doing this thing for a long time, and now you come in here talking about everything I've been doing is... Merely pointing to something else? No, this is it. He's like, no, beloved, there's something better. 
The author of Hebrews says it's similar. So also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to bear sin, but, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Since the law has, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come. Again, this author saying the same thing. It's only a shadow of the things to come, of the good things to come, and not the reality itself of those things. Why? Because the law can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offered year after year. Otherwise, they wouldn't have stopped, they would have stopped being offered since the worshipers would have been purified. It's the concept. Um, purified once for all. They would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And that's the concept. That's what, what Paul's trying to get across. That old, that old Testament sacrificial system is not equipped to redeem your soul. It doesn't take the blood of bulls and goats, and it doesn't take your own efforts and sacrifices to be made right with God. It takes Jesus' blood and your faith in that blood. That's how, you made, that's, how you, that's how you're made right with God. But that's offensive to them. The Judaizers were offended at Paul because Paul would say that their lineage doesn't play a role in God's saving purposes. Paul would say that their efforts in law-keeping doesn't improve their spiritual score. Some of us think that way today. Some of us think that if we do good, we, we, we level up in the faith. You ever think about, oh, they, oh he, he's, he's about level eight. This dude about level 19, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's how we think. That's so skewed. That's so wrong. No levels to this thing. You love Jesus, you're being sanctified. That's how it rolls. It's not, it's not a score game. They were offended. I, I'm going to repeat this. I already said it. They were offended because their lineage doesn't play a role in, this, in God's saving purposes. That's a big deal. Even today, there are cults and groups of people who will try to convert you to a particular lineage, to a particular ethnic identity, and saying that that's the means by which God has given you favor. Beloved, that's not true at all. It's lies. They were offended because Paul's like, your customs and traditions are not essential to gaining favor with God. Paul's giving them new eyes to see God's recipe. There are other ways in which the gospel offends the Judaizers and the people of Paul's day, but I hope that just gives you a little taste of why it was offensive. It's like changing your grandmother's recipe. Now, going back to the passage, I want to see how this can apply to us. Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Let me translate that a little bit. Paul is saying, if I preach a gospel that's based on our ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, no one will be upset with me. If, if I stood on this stage and told you, you can do it, you just gotta try hard, it's in you, believe in yourself, none of you would have a problem with me. Because you would look somewhere in there and think that you're seeing something good and say, you know what, I can do it. And then you're going to leave here and you're going to try to do it. Then you're going to fail. Then you're going to come back. I'm going to say, be encouraged. Go try again. And you're going to fail again. And then eventually you're going to be like, this mug ain't working. But it takes a long time before you get there. But it sells real good. Look inside. You're good. You got it. You got everything you need. You're ready. That feels good. That's uplifting. That's somebody affirming me. Do you see something good in me? Yes. You have it within yourself. You know when people get offended? 
when you tell them that's not the truth. That you don't have it within yourself. That there's nothing good within you and anything good within you is a gift of God. That's when they get offended. They get offended when I say stop trusting in your own abilities. Though God has given you skills, he's the one that makes it work. They get offended when I say stop having confidence in anything you have and in yourself. Don't even look in there. You'll be be disgusted at what you truly see. That's when people get offended. This is why the gospel is offensive to us today. What the gospel does is it brings you to the end of you before it redeems you. That's what it does. It brings you to the end of you and then it redeems you. Think about it. The gospel is offensive to our human sensibilities because it superimposes on us who we, who we are without our permission. It superimposes on us what we need without our permission and it superimposes on us um, uh, what we deserve without our permission. We want to define ourselves. Don't you? I, de- I, t- I determine who I am. That's what we want. That's what we're told. That's what the talk shows tell us. You determine who you are. There's some truth in that. There's elements of truth in that. There's elements of truth in that. You can shape and mold and, and grow in different uh, aspects of who you are, for sure. But the definition of who we are at, at our deepest level is always given to the creator, not the creation. You can't make a painting and let the painting define itself. The painting is whatever you said it was. When my kids draw a picture, and I can't tell what that thing is, and it looks like a cup, and she says it's a car, beloved, it's a car. No matter what it thinks, it's a car. But it's because the creator said that was the intent of its creation. People get in the thing that looks like the cup, and the one wheel rides. That's what it is. The creator always has definitional right over the creature. But what the book of Romans teaches us is that the creature hates the reality of something being able to define us. We want to define ourselves at every level. You can't. You run into a fool's errand. It's a fool's errand to do that. You can say you're a screwdriver all you want when you're really a hammer. We have an innate sense of entitlement. The gospel tells us that we deserve nothing good. We don't like that. Listen to this. This is how most of us like to think of ourselves. Me too, I'm in there, okay, I'm in the box. As strong, healthy. Own which one is yours. Strong, healthy, wise, accepted, self-sufficient, competent, in control. That's, some, that's most of y'all. Right? That's me. I'm in there. I like to consider myself some of these things. Gospel's not for you if that's who you are. What did Jesus say? I came for the sick, not the healthy. The gospel's for the weak, not the strong. The gospel's for the sick, not the healthy. It's for the foolish, not the wise. It's for the needy, not the self-sufficient. It's for the inferior, not the superior. It's for the servant, not the master. It's for the dependent, not the one who's in control. The world is training us to be independent, to live independent of God. And God is saying, I built you to be dependent on me. That's why you're running yourself ragged. That's why the alcohol got a grip on you. You can't deal what's in your own mind. But you want to be apart from me? 
as soon as we have a right understanding of who we are, we can be confident. This this, this week I had a meeting with a lady. Um, we were sitting in my office and um, I was talking about some of the lies that I tend to believe as a pastor. And one of them is kind of a lie. It's like, man, you know, you're incompetent to lead God's people. Like that would be a refrain that I, that I hear in my head constantly. I'm incompetent to lead God's people. And that used to kill me. That would destroy me for like two or three days. Like, I can't do this. I quit. I'm done. Until I started saying, you know what? This dude's right. I am incompetent to lead God's people. Jesus got to do this work. If I let them follow me, they're all in trouble. But if I point them to follow Jesus, everybody's good. You're right. I'm trash. But this dude, I know somebody who's not. As soon as I stop trying to be all things, I restore confidence in my soul. I'm following after the one with the answers. You feel me? The gospel so strips us of our sensibilities and control that we don't trust it. As I was reading up on this, this concept of the gospel being offensive, I came across this article and it hit. One of them hit hard. One of the things this dude said hit hard. Listen to, the, listen to what he said. What's the, and, and, and I want you to interact with it a little bit, but don't say anything. We're doing that. What's the first thing you do when you find yourself knee deep in sinful actions? What's the first thing you do when you find yourself knee deep in sin? Whatever your sin is, think about your sin, the one that besets you. You're knee deep in that. What's the first thing you do? And don't, do, don't say the first thing you want to do. Don't give me the Jesus answer the first thing you do. No, what do you really do? Okay? Because we all know the right Sunday school answer. I don't want that trash. I want you to tell me what you actually do. What is it? Find yourself in that situation. You're in there. What's the first thing you do? And then he said this, and it was like, whole jaw went crooked. He said, it's probably the same thing I do. Self-atone. Plan. Scramble. And self-punish. Self-punish. That's what I do. Beloved, if I can give you all a transparent moment, is I self-punish. I commit some kind of a sin, and then I feel like I got to do something in order to make that sin right, and then I make myself feel worse than I should ever feel about the thing that I mean. I, I sit there and just, I'm the worst. I beat, I destroy myself. You all know people who do that? Maybe you're like me, and you just look at, I'm the, oh my gosh, I'm trash. God doesn't love me no more. I'm the, I'm the worst person. Da, 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 da. My kids do this, and I was like, where do you get that from? And then I was like, oh, you get it from me. And he said, we think of things we can do to prove how sorry we are. We consider ourselves too dirty to even speak to God. Then he said, why do we do this, though? It's not because of the gospel. It's because the idea of another person's work saving us rather than our own offends us somewhere within. We think I should be in charge of my own justice and I should atone for my own sin. We're so offended by relying entirely on another person's work that we temporarily reject God's grace solely so that we can feel like we're in charge again. And he says, in those moments, we literally prefer hell over dependence. But then he says this, the offensive truth of the gospel is that you could have just committed that flagrant sinful action. You could have just done it, and then you could immediately enter God's presence with joy and his approval on you. But that's how none of us act. 
But that's the gospel truth, because somewhere within us, we refuse to depend on Jesus' work to make us right with God. We commit the sin, and we wallow, or we, or we shame, or we hide, or we do whatever the thing is that you do, when in, in actuality, we can step right back into God's presence and say, I plead the blood of Christ on my sin. I'm sorry. I'm good. God, hold, pick me up. But that's... That's the beauty of the gospel. Why don't we do it? Because we're offended at it somewhere within us. We think of offense like an outward, like, oh, I can't believe you did that. No, we refuse it. It's too simple. It can't be that simple. It's too simple. Don't give me that simple sauce. I need something that's going to work. He says immediately with no self-punishment, with perfectly, with no perfectly laid out plans right at that moment, you can step into the presence of God and enjoy his approval for you. Think about that child that just did that thing. Maybe your niece, your nephew, maybe your child. They do that thing, they have consequences. What do children do as soon as they, we can learn from our kids. What do they do after they get the consequences for their action? What's the first thing they do? Can I have a hug? Why are they doing that? We're the safe place. They, they know that they can receive unlimited amounts of love from me no matter what they have done. They will always enter my presence with joy and acceptance. But we don't have faith like children. We matured out of that. And we try to self-atone, try to self-wallow, try to self-justify. We try to do something to make up for what we did. It's not the gospel. The gospel, Jesus says, come to me. So you do it, come to me. He didn't say stay over there for five minutes and think about what you did. Come to me. He didn't say, man, see, I knew you was going to do that. Now you're on timeout. No, come to me. He just constantly says it. Come on. Man, I messed up. Come on. Man, I can't, I can't be in your presence. Come on. Know what we do? No, I can't right now. What are we telling God? You're wrong, I'm right. I'm God, I'm sovereign. I can't come to you. Remember when Peter... When, when Jesus talking about his death, Peter's like, no, it can't happen. He's like, man, get behind me, Satan. You don't tell me. I tell you. Come. This is counterintuitive to today's culture and way of thinking. It's too easy. Beloved, there's other ways that the gospel is offensive, but hear this truth. Faith in Jesus equals restoration, period. Don't add anything to it. Faith in Jesus equals restoration, from that point on, all we're doing is leading each other closer and deeper to Christ-likeness. So I basically want to give you this gospel truth. That if the gospel doesn't offend before it redeems, you might not have or know the gospel. Because conviction always precedes our faith. Do you remember when you first received the gospel? When somebody first told you you were a sinner, how'd you do it? How'd you like it? Because you were like, you're right. I'm trash. No, that's not how you were. You'd be like, I'm a sinner. Wait a minute, define that. What do you mean? Am I imperfect? That's what you mean? I can get down with that. But what else does that mean? And if someone begins to, to walk you through, for example, Romans chapter 3, where it talks about every facet of the human person is utterly corrupt. Your thinking is corrupt. Your, your heart is corrupt. Your hands are corrupt. Your lips is corrupt. Everything about you is corrupt. And then you, they bring you back to the Old Testament in Isaiah, and it says all the good things you've done, probably filthy rags, because you probably did it for somebody else's glory other than mine, God says, right? And so when somebody says that, you'd be like, wait a minute. I'm, not, I'm a good person. 
The gospel comes in and says, wait, stop thinking. Hold on. Hold on. There's no one good but me. Implication, you're not as good as you think you are. Offense. But true. And then he says, let me tell you, let me tell you what I did for people just like you who thought you were a good person, but in actuality need to be transformed by my work, by my hands. Beloved, I want to tell you this truth, that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of you have. All of you are sinners and you've sinned and you fall short of the glory of God. That's true. We are slaves to sin. Yes, you're a slave to sin. You're slaves to sin in one way or another. You're broken, yet you're prideful. You're perpetually doing and never satisfied with what you do. God is determined to administer justice on sin and sinners by the hands of his holy wrath. That's true. The scope of God's justice will sweep you and me into the hands of a God who hates sin and hates sinners. You know the, the, the cliche, God loves the sin, uh, hates the sin and loves the sinner? I don't find that. Psalm 11, 5, Psalm 5, 5 said, God hates those who do iniquity. Them, not just the iniquity. That's harsh. It's offensive. It's true. We're helpless and we're destined for wrath. But God in his perfect person counters that intense hatred with an intense love. A love for his creation. And this God wasn't willing to see his creation destroyed. And so he entered into his creation. He entered into humanity, sending his son in the likeness of humanity that he might save humanity from themselves and from the sin that they're so entangled in. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And his name was, is Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. And this Jesus, he didn't know any sin, lived a life of perfection. He was what the Old Testament calls a, calls a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus allowed himself to be beaten and killed, hung on a Roman cross, just like a sacrifice should be. And they killed him because his gospel was offensive. All this was the price he chose to pay in order to turn God's wrath from people like you and me. And as proof that God accepted Jesus' perfect sacrificial life, he rose from the grave three days later. And now the sacrifice of Jesus is effective to turn, God, to turn God's wrath into favor towards us. That's the good part of the good news. That's why they call it good news. God's wrath is looming. Jesus satisfied it for those who have faith in him. That's what I needed to hear. Not that I was great and that I can do it in myself. It's that I needed saving and somebody saved me. That's what I needed to hear. That's what I needed for my psyche, my soul, my heart. Because leaning on me wasn't working. What Jesus did is he moved you out of the position of being the object of hostility to being the object of his love. Jesus didn't do it because humanity deserved it. He didn't do it because you were so good at keeping that Mosaic law. He didn't do it because you cute. He didn't do it because you prayed last week like you said you were. He did it by grace out of love for his creation. 
And he had you in mind when he was bleeding on that cross, specifically you. Specifically you. God loved you before you were created and said, I'm going to give my life that I can redeem you, Shane. You, Harrison, Ash, you. Your name was written in his palm, bro. Before anything else. And when I think about how trash I am, yet he loved me anyway, that brings me to my knees. I have a good, gracious God. He did it as an act of grace and love. But the key to experiencing the relief that you so desperately need is found only in entrusting yourself to Jesus, turning from all your previous sensibilities and placing your faith and trust in the person and sacrificial work of Jesus. Beloved, don't believe, I mean, I'm sorry, beloved, don't leave here today without placing your faith in that truth, that Jesus is the one that you need and that you've been trying to satisfy yourself with everything else and have come up short. Beloved, pivot. That's what, that's, that's what repent means, turn, right? Stop doing it that way and just turn unto Jesus and surrender it all to him. Let him redeem your soul. Let him transform you from the inside out. Let him show you that your greatest need is to be made right with God and then let him make you right with God and then experience what it's like to have a right relationship with God maybe for the first time in your entire life. We serve a good, loving, powerful, wrathful God. And he comes to redeem a sinful, broken people like you and me. If I offended you, I hope it wasn't because of my posture, but because of the truth. And if there is any truth that you need to know and believe is that if your faith is in Jesus, you are securely his. No matter what last week looked like. If you had a trash last week, you had a trash this morning. I invite you to surrender that mug right now. How do you do that? Just focus on him and be like, Lord, confess. Start there. My, my, my week was trash. My morning was trash. I'm feeling like trash. Shouldn't even be here this morning. I don't even feel like I'm connected to you. I don't even know you. A good place to start is what's true. How do you feel? That's how you truly feel. And then say, but I know what the gospel says. Did you, were you considering me before this week? You knew I was going to do this, yet you still loved me? Did you give yourself on the cross to redeem the likes of me? Lord, I need that, and I don't know how to get it. Can you give me the gift, the free gift? Of, can you save me? Can you transform my soul, Lord Jesus? I got nothing but you. I need you. I know I'm empty. I've been fronting for 15 years. I'm fronting. I need you. I surrender to you. And then let him do whatever he does with your soul. He'll work it out. But don't leave here today, believer or not, or not knowing what you are, and not be in a posture of surrendering, surrendering yourself to the truth of the gospel. Let it offend, and then let it redeem. Why? How? Come on. There we go. Because we're saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is God's wonderful, amazing, put some other stuff in there, great gift, not from works. Feels good now. Are you free? It wasn't good you're weak. Not from works. I'm good. It's faith. No man can boast. God, thank you. Father, thank you so much for the simplicity of the gospel. 
that we are saved by grace through faith, and it's not dependent on what I've done. Because if it was, Lord, oh man, I'd be in trouble. But it's based on your work and your work alone, Jesus. And I'm so thankful for that. And I always forget it. I constantly forget that it's you who I need to be putting my trust in, you who I need to be looking to. Help me to remember that I can come to you at any moment, after any issue, that I can sin and crawl my way back into the arms of my loving Father. And so, Lord, please don't allow Satan to have his way by lying to the people under the sound of my voice. I pray that they would come to believe the truth of the gospel, that they are redeemed not of what they've done, not in accord with their works, but in accord with their faith. And the more they grow with you and mature in you, the more like you they look. And the sin that so easily entangles tends to fall off. And the commands and the wonderful laws of God become, to become, become beautiful in our sight because we understand them now. We see the wisdom in them now. But it wasn't because we obeyed them. It's because we, we dwelt at your feet. We've been transformed by your presence. That's why you said Mary was doing something better than Martha when you visited their home. Mary sat at your feet. Martha was busy doing, but she was the one being transformed, the one who sat at your feet. You said, leave her alone. She's doing right. But we ain't got time for that. We got dinners to cook and people to see. Help us to remember that man doesn't live off bread alone, but from every word that comes from your mouth. And that your presence is absolutely necessary for our growth in the faith. So Lord, grow us closer to you and to one another. Encourage us and lead us. Call us to repent. And let the gospel be offensive. Not us. That it may bring someone to saving knowledge in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.